Okay, I'm glad you're here. We'll, uh, we'll jump in. There's a lot I want to talk about today, um, including economics and Torah economics and uh, just different, um, different models for um, just conducting business affairs and, and organizing society. And, you know, one of the things is, one of the things about the Torah is it's so incredibly vast that uh, sometimes, um, well, uh, let me give an example. Like, so, well, let me make the point first. Sometimes, given its vastness, it's, it's hard to um, appropriately weight various things. So there are some principles which have such overriding, huge importance, and they'll get the same amount of ink or, or you know, you know, real estate space in the Torah as something that's not unimportant, because if the Torah is mentioning it, obviously it's important, but is, is sort of much less overriding and um, influential in terms of how we lead our daily lives than other things. And yet, you'll see, this is two lines in the Torah, and this is two lines in the Torah. So, so it really, so there, it really takes a lot of experience and, 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 and things like that to be able to zero in on those things which are really the big things. And sometimes they get lost in the shuffle and they don't get discussed as much. Especially if they're, due to historical reasons, they're a little bit outdated. What I mean by that, the Torah is always relevant, but Outdated meaning there are certain, um, certain things that only kick in uh, under certain circumstances. Like, for instance, if they're, one of the critical things, a lot of people don't realize this, and it's going to become very re- relevant uh, in the immediate future, is there are certain halachas from the Torah that can only be done if there's a majority of the Jewish people of the world living in the land of Israel. Now, this hasn't been even close to relevant for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And right now, in terms of just the demographics of the Jewish people, we're just about at that point where the majority of Jewish people in the world are going to be living in the land of Israel. By the way, that's one of the conditions of prophecy. There are various conditions for prophecy being restored to the world. One of them is that the majority of Jews should be dwelling in the land of Israel itself. So that's, that's kind of interesting. So that's, and that's exciting, actually. Because when I was growing up, you know, Israel was sort of like, well, there was sort of like just a few Jews in Israel, basically. There weren't that many. And now it's basically the majority. Not officially, but pretty close. Okay, so, so or if we have a Sanhedrin or a Beis Hamikdash, the Sanhedrin is sort of like the, the Supreme Court in, 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 in Torah. So we don't, have a, we don't have a Sanhedrin officially, officially. Although there is one that kind of exists right now, but it doesn't have the full status, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of classic sense. Um, so, so, so what I'm trying to say is that, that for historical reasons, for instance, certain laws about bringing offerings to the base of Migdash and everything like that, like, they don't really impact our lives that much today, even though these rules are still very much on the books. Now... Now, there's another example, and it's one that I want to speak about um, more at length, which is the concept of Yovel, uh, which we have in, in, in this week's Parsha uh, Bahar. Yovel is a fascinating thing. And because, um, <clears throat> be, because for certain reasons that I'll explain to you in a moment, they're not in effect right now, we don't appreciate how huge an effect it had on the way we lived our lives as Jews and will again one day soon, God willing. But you'll see that there's this incredible utopian um, economic model that runs Jewish life and is very, very influential on a, on a daily basis. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. It's one of these things that it's just a few lines and because we don't have it in effect right now, you don't realize like, how big a flavor this is in what Judaism actually is because of historical reasons, but, but it will return. So it's important to appreciate it for the reason, not just for academic reasons, for, 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 for understanding what the Jewish view of life is. You understand? So I'll get into more details in a moment. But, 
But let me just give you one sort of example. I, when, when I first got married, I, I saw a, uh, I bought a lot of cookbooks. And there was one cookbook, um, I think it was 365 Recipes for Chicken. <laughs> right? I once saw, by the way, that, that cooks call chicken, like, um, like for painters, like, you know, you have a blank canvas. You can do anything with a blank canvas. That chicken is to a chef what a blank canvas is to an artist. Because with chicken, you can absolutely do anything. You can, you can paint it in any way, with spices and preparation. It's, it's anything you make it into, right? So we selected this um, recipe from the 365 ways to prepare chicken. It was cinnamon chicken, I think it was called. And cinnamon was actually, because cinnamon is actually a very powerful taste. Um, it, it was just like a, a, just a tiny bit. But we put too much cinnamon in the cinnamon chicken, and it was horrible. <laughs> it was almost inedible. But what I'm trying to say is, is that one ingredient, even if it seems like to be a small thing, one ingredient can exert a huge amount of influence on the flavor of the whole. And these halachas that I'm about to discuss with you in a moment of Yovel, the way our economic society was organized, and again, will be again soon, one day, soon. It's like one ingredient, but it colors the entire taste of daily life from the Jewish perspective. And I never really hear this discussed, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get into it, okay? So, so what is Yovel? So Yovel is um, every 50th year, See, every 50th year, you had a Yovel. And in, in, uh, that's the Hebrew word. In, um, I, I have a friend, by the way, uh, who we, we're very close, but we hardly ever see each other. And when, whenever I see him, the first thing he always says is, I haven't seen you in a Yovel. <laughs> so that's his that's running joke. But, um, but it's translated in English, by the way, as the Jubilee year. Okay? Usually you just have, like, country jubilees, or maybe they would country jamborees. But I think you have jamborees and jubilees. What's the difference between a jamboree and a jubilee? That's what I'd like to know. But anyway, so that's how this word yovel in English is usually translated. Not that that's helpful, by the way, but I just want to give you some context there. So, anyway, we still haven't gotten to the point here. It's a big topic, so I just uh, I have to just approach it from various different angles before we can actually dig in. Um, let's start with just a bit of Jewish history for a moment. The Jews leave Egypt, and then we go into Israel. And the land of Israel is divided up among the twelve tribes. And by the way, the, the Medrash explains, and Rashi brings this, something very fascinating. And for you um, readers of Harry Potter, this is a detail that was taken um, and is put in the Harry Potter books, by the way. Um, whether this was conscious or, or, or not conscious, I don't know, but it's the exact thing. I mean, it's no, there's no debate about whether it's an exact parallel. In, um, in Harry Potter, you have different houses where the kids live um, um, at, at Hogwarts. Uh, Slytherin, if I'm pronouncing that, uh, is where like, all the bad kids went. And then there's, what's the, what's the good one? I, I've forgotten, I'm sorry. But they, were, they, they divided them up according to your personality. And what they would do is they had a hat. And you would walk up to the hat. The, first, the, the new students would walk up to the hat. And the hat would speak and tell you which, which house you belonged in. Which house you belonged in. Okay? And you'll see that's in the first movie, the first book. Anyway, the Torah, the Medr says, and this is already, you know, from hundreds, thousands of years ago. What happened was... The, they, they, they drew lots because, so that there would be no sort of arguments about which land, which tribe got. Because, you know, each of the lands had different personalities. Some of them were by the coast, for instance, right? So that was like a, an opportunity for business and shipping and things like that. Others were good for other things, you know? So, so they had a, a lottery system where the lots themselves talked. You reached into like a hat, basically, and you took out the lots and the lots talked. And they told you which piece of land your tribe was assigned to. 
So, so this is this is very deep, actually, and it's 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 important for us to understand to understand before we kind of even get further into this whole concept of Yovel and what happened during the 50, 50th year. Um, the implications of what our relationship, what the Jewish re- people's relationship is with the land of Israel. Now, I just want to say before I just preface the following words, that what I'm about to say right now has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. Obviously, the land of Israel is a, a hot-button political issue right now. But I'm not addressing that at all right now. I just want to tell you how we classically understand the relationship between the Jewish people and the land of Israel itself. Just what our view is, okay? And the, the thing is, is that we have to understand that it's a piece of ourselves. It's not a location. And it's not just that it's a location and it has more significance because God gave us that particular location. All of that's true. It does have extra added value because God said that place as opposed to this place or, or the other place. So, but it goes further than that. That the land itself is actually part of our spiritual consistency, of our makeup, of our constitution. Not in the, not in the written document sense, but of actually in the physical sense. So in other words, if you imagine your soul to be an actual physical entity, which it is, because it's a, it's a real thing, it's not just an idea. Your soul is a real thing. It's much more spiritual and ethereal than your actual body, but it's no less matter, it's no less real. So part of your soul is merged with the land of Israel itself. So in other words, when I look at you from the outside, I see your arms, I see your head, I see your legs... I don't see the land of Israel. Nonetheless, the land of Israel is as much a part of you as your arms and your legs. So that's just, that's just important to understand. Now, it goes even further than that. Because when, when we were assigned the various spots within Israel, each tribe got a particular spot, and that spot was, was given over because that maximized the potential of that tribe. You see, it's not just like there are 12 tribes and it just happened to be 12 kids and 12 tribes and, all right, we've got to give them 12 pieces of land. It, it's, it's more than that. There are 12 different personalities and each aspect is covered by one of the tribes. Each personality, each, each set of gifts. So, so you have the sort of the full spectrum contained within the tribes. That's what it is, okay? So each one is different, and each tribe was given that parcel of land to maximize its potential. So, for instance, Zvulun, one of the tribes, was given the coastal area because their personality was business-oriented. So they were assigned, it wasn't just a coincidence, oh, well, we can do business over here because we're by the coast, it's a great place to do shipping and trading. No, they were, that's where they were divinely ordained because that's going to bring out that, that piece of land which is part of their soul is going, to have to, is going to help them maximize the potential of the rest of their soul. Okay, so just, just these, are, these are important concepts. Um, okay, so now, now within the tribes there was further subdivision which is now all the families within the tribe got a piece of land within that parcel. Okay? And then that became your piece of land for all eternity. Okay? So, so, so let's just review. The Jews leave Egypt. We go into Israel. Every tribe is assigned a piece of land. And within that piece of land, every family within that tribe gets a subdivision of that particular piece of land. And that becomes your piece of land forever. Okay? Now, one of the reasons why we don't have Yovel today is because of a historical reason. Because, you see, at a certain point, we we have these terms called, Israel was divided up into what was called the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. But it was just the land of Israel, okay? And a great king, I mean, he was not a great guy, but he was, you know, a big kind of military person, 
Sencherev is how we pronounce it in Hebrew. He came in and uh, he exiled, he, he militarily conquered the northern kingdom which contained ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. So when we talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel, if you've ever heard that, or people say, well, the American Indians are a lost tribe, or the Rastafarians are a lost tribe. You know, people are always talking about the lost tribes of Israel, right? This is what we're talking about. When Sennacherib came in, he took the northern kingdom and just exiled them. And they assimilated and disappeared. So they, they became lost. And there's many fascinating things where, where they could have gone. The Gomorrah talks about um, the river Sambation, which is um, a river that basically flowed with such, you know, velocity and rocks and maybe even lava or whatever it is. I mean, it was, it was impassable. You could not pass over it. Except, on Shabbos it stopped. But on Shabbos, one of the laws is you can't cross the river. So the Jews were trapped behind that and you couldn't get to them and they couldn't get out. So there, there are many, many legends and fascinating things about where the ten tribes are. All ten tribes, all twelve tribes are still around today. Meaning to say they're representatives in the world today of all of the tribes. So that DNA, that, 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 that genetic aspect of our people is still with us. But people just don't know anymore what tribe they are. So when we divide up the Jewish people today, we talk about, here's the, here are the tribes, the lower two tribes in the southern kingdom. I'm saying lower geographically, spiritually, if they're higher, are the Levium, the Kahanim, right? The, 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 the priest, that's the priestly class, right? That's from the tribe of, of, of Levi. We still know who they are, because there's a tradition. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Levi. Um, so, and then Yehuda. So, who we call the Israel. So, that's kind of like the broad category. The Israelites, basically. So, so you have, you know, when you, when you divide up the people called to the Torah, you have Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. So, the twelve tribes are just under the category of Israel at this point. But they don't know, we don't know which tribe we're from. Unless you're a Kohen or a Levi. Okay. Why am I telling you this? Because the 50th year... How do I know which piece of land is mine if I'm from the tribe of Dan or from the tribe of Gad or from the tribe of Binyamin? Or how do I know if I'm one of these people? So in other words, because I don't know what tribe I'm from anymore, I personally do, but since most of us, the great majority of us, don't know what tribe we're from anymore, we don't know which piece of land is ours. Okay? So now you'll see in a moment why that's significant, why that affects the enactment of the Yovel today, the the 50th year, the Jubilee year. Okay, so now that's all the historical background. Now we can actually understand the the, the cinnamon element that I was talking about before. What is this economic model that the Torah puts forth, which is so influential, okay, and not nearly fully appreciated? Okay, so... So here's what it is. You see, as we know, and we know, unfortunately, especially today, economically speaking, there are ups and downs. That's just the way it goes. That's the way it's always been. Good times, hard times, good times, hard times. That's what it is. So, so it could be that a person who has a piece of land in Israel might want to sell their piece of land in order to get some cash. Makes sense, right? So, so you can do that. You can sell your piece of land. But now listen to this, something very, very interesting. Every 50th year, and that's the Yobel year, that's the Jubilee year, you get your land back. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Filled with implications, and I'm going to discuss them with you. What this means on a real here and now level, Okay? You see, you see, historically speaking, so, historically speaking, we've tried to create different economic models. And probably the most prevalent ones today that we know about are capitalism, communism, 
socialism, these are all economic models, right? But the Yovel economy is the Torah model. And let's see how that contrasts and compares with the other economic models, okay? You see, communism, and communism, Karl Marx, I guess, is credited with um, coming up with communism, was a Jew. And you see, a lot of, a lot of these um, isms, and you have them in many other fields, are created by Jews because what they're trying to do is it's, you see, we believe that the world is evolving toward perfection. That is, that's the Torah vision of the world. And that right now, we're on the road toward that. That's what the Torah is. That's what the mitzvahs are. We're, we're working with God, we're partners with God toward bringing about the ultimate realize, realization of creation. Said another way, the world is still in the process of being created. We're in the middle. We're in the middle. So, and we understand that on a soul level. And so a lot of times these, these utopian visions that, like communism, that people come up with, disproportionately come from Jews. And Jews who are disconnected from Torah, for whatever reason. Just, maybe they didn't grow up, maybe they never learned. It's not necessarily that they rejected it or cut it off. You know, a lot of people just don't know anything today. There's a plague of ignorance. We we just don't know. We, We just weren't educated. So, but for whatever reason, on a soul level, because there's a knowledge of this ultimate utopia that we're driving toward, people have it within them to bring about a system that's going to enact that. But the problem is, is that if the systems, we already have these systems. That's what the Torah is. If we try to do it through sort of like man-made ways, a lot of times there's disaster. And I'm not preaching. I'm just pointing to the historical record right now. And I think in our lifetimes, the greatest example is communism. Because communism was absolutely a utopian vision. Can you imagine? Everyone has the exact same amount. What could be more perfect justice than that? The workers own the means of production. There's not an owner class and a worker class. We're all owners. And we're all workers. And we all have the same amount. And so what was the result of that vision? Stalin killed more people than Hitler. You know, we we imagine Hitler as the paradigm of the mass murderer. Stalin killed way more people than Hitler. They say Mao, in China, killed more people than Stalin. In the name of communism. In the name of utopian perfect justice. Tens of millions of people died for this idea. But it started off as like the most amazing idea. Why not? No worker class and owner class being oppressed by the workers. The ideas sound great. But look at what the result was. Yeah. Wait, so is capitalism we're going, to get, we're going to get to capitalism. Believe me, this is, not a, this is not a defense of capitalism. Now, capitalism in itself is also like real pure capitalism is a vicious system. Like when you think of capitalism, pure capitalism, what comes to mind for me is, is sort of a Dickensian orphan covered with soot. Right? I mean... Capitalism basically is everyone gets to make money, you're poor, you lose. Sorry, guy. I got no responsibility to you whatsoever. If I want to give you some of my money because I'm a nice guy, great. If not, you starve to death, that's your problem. Get a job. You know, that's, that's pure capitalism. That's pure capitalism. What we have in America today is really a mix between capitalism and socialism. 
What FDR did during the whole Depression era, during the whole New Deal thing, by, by, by instituting um, what they call um, safety nets, economic safety nets. That was like Social Security, and then later on we got Medicare and Medicaid, and all sorts of government programs, unemployment insurance, all of these things is really closer to the socialistic model than the capitalistic model. So America today is not purely capitalistic at all. No one will say that it is. But what they'll often do is, since Europe has much more of a socialistic model, they'll say, no, they're socialism, we're capitalism. But that's not exactly accurate. They're just much more socialistic than we are, but we have a lot of socialism built into our capitalism. So, so all of these systems are flawed. But now, let's revisit what the Torah system is, what the divine system is. Because basically what we're trying to do is, you know, it's like there's this algorithm, basically, this spectrum between pure capitalism and pure communism or socialism. And we're trying to figure out, like, where's the in-between? What's the perfect balance? What's the perfect mix? That's what we've been trying to do historically. You know, like, for instance, when, you know, there was a big uh, hubbubaloo. It was like all the headlines for, for months and months, like last year or whatever it is, when um, uh, Obama was trying to institute um, the, 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 the new medical plan, right? And, um, and again, this is, this is another attempt at trying to figure out What's the perfect mix between um, private sector and, public, and, and, and government sector, sector? You know, in terms of mixing the two, in terms of medical aid. Does basically the government take control of the, the, the medical field? Or should that still be private enterprise? Or should it be a mix? And to what degree should it be a mix? Should it be the England model? Should it be the Canada model? All these questions. But basically... To just understand the point here, what we're trying to figure out is, what is that curve, what is that perfect mix of ingredients to create the ideal society? That's what everybody wants. Okay? So I'm just trying to put the Torah model into a current historical context. Okay? So now let's go back to what the Torah model is. Now imagine. Imagine I'm like... uh, You see... What the Torah wants us to do is, the Torah wants us to take the physical things of this world and to elevate them with spirituality. Like, for instance, kashrus, keeping kosher. What's, what's the most physical thing in the world, in a way, on some level anyway, is eating. I gotta eat. I gotta eat. So God says, okay, look, that's great. Say a blessing. Acknowledge that the food before you eat Say a blessing before you eat something comes from God, right? Make it kosher. Make sure that the, the food that you eat, that you don't just cram into your mouth, I'm hungry, right? That it's kosher. That there's, that there's a certain aspect of spirituality that you're infusing the physical with, right? So, so you know, what... Um, what what many other religions have done, um, as opposed to, in the very stark contract to the Jewish understanding, is the holy person in that re- religion divorces themselves from the daily aspects of life. Right? So, like the Swami in, in, in Eastern traditions will sit in isolation or on a mountaintop or something like that. So, he's sort of divorced himself from the everyday aspects of society. Or the priest in, in Catholicism doesn't get married, doesn't have children, right? So, again, that's removing yourself in a significant way from the, from the grind of, of daily life. The Jewish view is the opposite. It's sort of like, no, you know, Jewish people historically are businessmen, you know? You know, so, so anti-Semites want to say that, oh, that's because you love money so much. But that's really missing the point. The idea is that, no, we're supposed to be part of the world, part of all the aspects of the world. Be married, have kids, engage in business, but infuse it with spirituality. Do it a certain godly way. And then you elevate the entire world. Okay? So, so but how do you balance those two things? Because, listen, I can keep... 
all the laws or whatever it is, but if I'm like doing business all the time, then, then the truth is, is that I'm going to become very business oriented and more materialistic. So, so now that the Jewish point of view is that you want to infuse daily life, you want to infuse uh, materiality with spirituality and lift it up and be involved in the world, how do you balance those two things? All right, now we get back to the cinnamon, okay? Which is, what is this ingredient that colored all of society? Even though it got just a few lines, and even though we're not doing it today, this is still our vision. Now we get back to Yovel. Now listen to how these things are balanced. An amazing thing. Totally different economic model that we're about to put forth here, okay? You see, I don't know if... Um, what does it mean that you get your land back in the 50th year? All right? Now, I don't know if any of you have read... I, I, I read this book recently. Um, it was a big bestseller, as all of Malcolm Gladwell's books are. Um, and uh, it's called Outliers. It's his last big book, I think. And in Outliers, he talked about, basically, um, he was talking about ex- people who have had uh, extraordinary success in certain fields. And what are the ingredients to, basically, off-the-chart success? And so he, he describes just how people become outliers. That's his term for people who are just, like, beyond. So one of the things that got widely quoted was that one needs 10,000 hours in a particular field in order to achieve true expertise. And he gives examples from the Beatles to all sorts of different examples that until you've put in your 10,000 hours, you're just not going to achieve this level of of mastery. Another thing, the, the point that I want to focus in on actually right now is, historically speaking, when were you born? When you're born, what generation you're born into what year you're born into has a huge amount of, um, of influence on whether or not you'll be an outlier, like one of the great outliers. Now, an example that he uses, and I'm going to apply this to Yovo in a moment, is Bill Gates. So Bill Gates, obviously the founder of Microsoft and I guess the first and maybe greatest of the computer barons, although I guess Steve Jobs has kind of overtaken him recently. But... Um, uh, Bill Gates um, was born right as the first computers were becoming accessible um, to people. But they were very rare. In other words, when I say the first computers, what I mean by that is we had computers like with the Manhattan Project making the atom bomb and things like that, but those computers basically filled huge rooms like floor to ceiling and you'd put in these punch cards and everything like that so that's like those were computers but not in the modern sense like a desktop computer or a laptop computer the first sort of modern computer right was like around the the late 60s approximately and very few people had them but it happened to be that Bill Gates was in high school and was in a high school where they had a computer club and where the parents were wealthy enough to, avoid, to, to provide that club with one of these early model computers. So, imagine, so that, now look, if he had been born five years earlier, or if he had been born ten years later, he would have missed that super sweet spot where he was the right age, where he could apply his mature intelligence to an early model, and with total focus and dedication and therefore be ahead of everybody else in the entire world. Do you see how timing had everything to do with that? Right? So, and, and, and then, of course, you have to take advantage of, of this situation. You know, my father-in-law um, told me, Olive Shalom, uh, that the word mazel, which is translated as luck, um, but it's way deeper than that um, in Torah, that Mazel is actually um, an acronym. Uh, the Mem stands for Makom, that means place. The Zion of Mazel, second letter, stands for Zman, which means time. Which means you have to be at the right time, in the right place, but then you have one more letter. Lamed, Mazel, Lamed, which stands for Lassos, which means that 
You have to be in the right time, in the right place, and then you have to do something. In other words, it's not enough just to be at the right time in the right place. Like, look, the two of you, right? You, you, you met, but you could have been in the same room, but if one of you didn't approach the other, if there was no lassos, then there's no mazel. You just have maz, which I don't know what that means. You know, so... So you have to do something, right? Like someone says, oh yeah, you know, you meet someone who's in a field that you're interested in and you get his card and you go, oh, well, great. But you never call him. You never send a resume. You never pursue it. There's got to be that lassos. There's got to be that doing. You know, that's the, that's the full picture. By the way, just as an aside, after I read Outliers, I sent that to Vartora about Mazel, time, place, doing, to Malcolm Gladwell. And, uh, you know, I didn't have his email because I don't know him, but I just sent it to the, you know, his publishing company. You know what I mean? Which is like basically, you know, insurance that he'll never get it. Right. Anyway, like two weeks later, it, I, I, I got an email directly from him um, and it had the whole, you know, sometimes you get an email and it's got the whole trail of emails behind it because no one deleted them. And I saw how it went from person to person within his organization until it got to him exactly. And then he wrote back saying, yeah, this is great, I love this, you know. <laughs> because it was really an encapsulation of the, of the book, you know. But anyway, that aside. Um, so, so, Bill Gates, what I'm trying to say is, is that he did something. It's not just that he had the early computer at a time. He also put in his 10,000 hours, or probably he put in a zillion thousand hours, right? And, and mastered programming. And then helped change the world because, you know, a lot of the reason why we have, you know, the desktop and the laptop and all the rest is, is because of him. So, anyway. Now, why am I bringing up all of this stuff? Because we're still talking about the Yovo year. Now, imagine at what point during the 50-year cycle you're born. See, this is very interesting, okay? And remember, we're talking about the balancing of materiality and spirituality here. And an economic system which will advance that balance. You see, just so you know, and the Torah makes this very clear, right, in the, 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 uh, the Chumash itself, in the text itself, which is that, let's say, um, let's say it's the 48th year and I want to sell my land. I need some cash, I want to sell my land. 48th year. Everybody knows I get the land back in the 50th year. So I'm only selling for two years' worth, which means I'm going to get a lower price. But let's say it's the first year of 50 years, and I want to sell. Then, then I'm going to get a much larger price, because I'm not going to get it back for 50 years, right? Got it? Unless I buy it back, but, but uh, there's no guarantee that I'm going to have the cash to do that or that the person necessarily wants to sell. Okay. So now, let's say I'm really way into business. And I'm sort of like at that age where I'm really entering the business world in a real way. But, and I want to go into real estate. Or farming. I want to be a big farmer because, you know, Israel grows like some of the best citrus, like oranges and things like that in the whole world. So, you know, there's a lot of money to be made that way. So let's say I want to buy all these parcels of land and make huge orchards, right? That's big money. So, so, but let's say right when I'm entering into the business world, if I want to start acquiring land, it's right as the 50th year is approaching, that's a powerful disincentive to go into that field. So all of a sudden, I have to think of like spirituality. Because I know that I'm born during a certain period of, of, of history that's sort of working against this. So I say, you know, what do I want to spend all my time in my life doing that? It's just going to go back to the people anyway. Right? So maybe I'll, maybe I'll pursue something else. You know what? I also love teaching. 
Maybe I'll become a teacher. Oh, all of a sudden, life changes. Now, let's say, I'll give you another example. And by the way, an important point of clarification. Let's say I buy up 50 parcels of land and I make huge orchards and I make money hand over fist, huge sums of money. And then the 50 year, 50th year comes. The land reverts back to the people, right? But the money that I made remains mine. You see, we talk about things like, when we talk about communism and even socialism, they so often use a, a, a phrase called redistribution of wealth. Unlike in communism, they're not taking your money in your bank account and giving it to other people. You're just giving the land back to the people. See, so that's a very capitalistic thing. You get to keep the money that you earn. Hard work, you make your money, keep your money. But what's the point? The land belongs to God. The land belongs to God. It's not for us to buy and sell forever. We're just buying and selling or leasing, if you will, the crops from the land. when, When I sell you my land, I'm not selling you my land. I'm selling you 50 harvests from the land. Now think about this now. A person had to sell their land. Let's say they're broke. Let's say they never really kind of made a lot of money. But the person who bought up their land was um, one of these um, great farmers, gifted guys with a lot of mazel for money, let's say. And now when I return back to my land, because he was like a citrus baron, all of a sudden there are tons of trees on my land that like, like really produce fruit. Wow, that's a, what a gift. I got my land back. It's been developed. I've got groves on it now. Unbelievable. I've got a whole other second chance. See, it's like God hits the reset button. And all of a sudden, everyone goes back. So maybe I'm entering the market at the beginning of the business cycle. It's the first year of the 50th year. And I'm like 18 years old or 20 years old. And I'm filled with energy and everything like that. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to go into real estate because the market looks really good for me. Got 50 years of buying and selling. But you know what? Let's say um, my father entered the business cycle at a time where it discouraged investment. So he's going to give me a certain amount of advice. He's going to go, you know what? You want to go into business? Go into business. But it's not all about business. <laughs> so now all the, all the people surrounding you, depending on when they're born during the 50-year cycle, and based on their experience, are going to give you wisdom that tempers spirituality with physicality. Right? So everyone has a different experience and everything is being balanced. And everyone gets another chance. Amazing system. This is the divine economic system. And now you understand what I'm trying to tell you. Because this little thing, can you see how this would influence all of life and the choices that everyone would make in terms of what profession they go into? And you know something? Maybe I want to build a big house. Big giant house. But I want to build it on uh, one of these other pieces of land. I thought, you know something, do I really have to get into such... You know what I mean? It's not mine anyway. You know, we have, a, we have an expression. Uh, there's no um, pockets in shrouds, which is kind of a fancy way of saying you can't take it with you. Because people are buried in a shroud, but there are no pockets in shrouds. So what are you going to... You're going to take your Rolex with you? It's like, it's a joke, you know? So it's not going to do you any good. So, it, it, you know, when people realize that this land is sort of temporary, you got your land, but all this other stuff, the above and beyond levels of wealth, is sort of temporary and fleeting, you don't want to invest that much into those things because you're not going to have it anyway. And then that reminds you, you know what, how much am I going to... I'm leaving this world anyway, so let me concentrate on the things that are forever, like my good deeds. Remember, I heard from Rabbi Wine something awesome which is that the Jews of Provence had a custom in around the 1200s, which is they would make their coffin out of their Shabbos table. 
incredible thing because the Shabbos table was the headquarters of chesed, the headquarters of kindness that we do in this world. And so that is what you can take with you into the next world. The kindness that you do for others. That is what you take with you. So, so this, is all, this is all factoring in and influences life in the most significant way. Especially when you live in America, right? Which is just cash, 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 cash. Right? And it's a, a person's worth is measured by that. By the way, I haven't mentioned it in a while, so let me just mention it right now. One of the things that I, I, I really want to, you know, start a campaign for, and please be mindful of this, is when people use a phrase, which I think is one of the most toxic phrases um, around today, which is, oh, that guy, that guy's worth $50 million. He's worth $50 million? How about he has $50 million? I don't know what he's worth. He might be a nice guy. I hope he is. But he's worth $50 million? You're measuring his value as a human being against what he has in the bank? Are you sick? And I, whenever I hear it, I always point it out to whoever says it, you know? And, you know, not to be... You can do it in a nice way, not to be obnoxious. But it's a very important little thing that, you know, totally like when we hear that, oh, he's worth X, he's worth Y. That, like, wires our brains in just the most toxic ways. Um, and so this whole system is coming to uproot that type of thinking. And this is the divine economic system. And it's the, so if you want to know, let's revisit the question. What is that perfect, what is that perfect mix between incentivizing someone, go out there, make money, right? As a, and, but at the same time, we want social justice. We want that safety net. We don't want just, you know, to throw away people who don't have. So what's that perfect mix? Here it is. This is it. This is the perfect mix. This is, this is God's model. So, so, um, boy, there's, there's, uh, more to share, but I, I, I don't know that, well, maybe two more minutes, can we do two more minutes just to change the subject just a little bit? Um, you know, in this Parsha, we've got a subdivision of the Yovel year, the 50th year. And this is something that's discussed much more frequently. And it's actually, believe it or not, done in Israel today. But this is all part of the idea of the Jubilee year. But like I said, for, for reasons that we don't know which tribe we are, we can't do the, 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 the Jubilee part, the Yovel part. This part we can do, though. This is called Shemitah. Translated in English as the sabbatical year. Okay? Every seventh year, you don't harvest your crops. You take the year off. You can do other things, but you don't work the land. Now remember, historically, most people were farmers. So that was what people did. So if you're not farming, you're pretty much kind of like learning how to paint landscapes and things like that. I mean, you know, you, know, you can do other things, but, but that was the main, you know, you know, job back then. So, so every seventh year, you just let the crops go. And, and you let the land rest and, and, and everything like that. And now, what happens is, is that after seven Shemitah years, seven times seven is 49 years, the 50th year becomes the Yovel year, the, the Jubilee year, where all the land, you don't just leave the land alone, but everyone returns back to their land. Okay? So, so now listen to this. I, uh, Starbucks, um, a few years ago, introduced a line of, of chocolates. And, um, and I went, and I remember the ad for, for Starbucks brand chocolates. I don't know if they're kosher, by the way. But anyway, this ad, I love this ad, okay? To me, this is poetry. 
Okay, here's what it said. When coffee dreams, it dreams of chocolate. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? When coffee dreams, it dreams of chocolate. Okay? So, so anyway. So now listen to this. I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. You see, Shabbos is like the highest. Shabbos is the highest. So, you see, we have something in Torah called the Shabbos of Shabbases. Shabbat Shabbaton. Yom Kippur is called, in the Torah, the Shabbos of Shabbases. And the Yovel, the Jubilee year, because after seven times seven years, you have seven Shemitah years, cycles, then comes the Jubilee year, which is also like the Shabbos of Shabbases. Okay? So, so I was thinking, like, imagine Shabbos, like in its most perfected way. You know, which is really, like, very much like imagining the the, the world being perfected. So when, can you imagine when Shabbos keeps Shabbos? What's that when Shabbos itself is keeping Shabbos? Right? That's Yom Kippur. Oh my goodness, wow. That's the Jubilee year. Wow. And that's the 50th year. Now listen to this. 50 is the day that we get the Torah. It's the 50th day after we leave Egypt. That's Shavuos. In fact, they don't even give a date in the, in, the, in the Torah for when Shavuos is. All they tell you is it's the 50th day after Pesach. So in other words, and that's the ultimate reconnecting to our source and return to the land. Right? Receiving the Torah itself. So, Shem should bless us that we should really be able to maximize what's inside of us and connect just to the most beautiful, beautiful aspects of all of reality and that Hashem should really bless the entire world and that we should be able to see not just, you know, all the various observances coming back, but society itself being perfected and fixed. Okay, have a great week.